Welcome to the first edition of our new Employment Law and HR podcast. Um, I'm Matthew Huggett, and what I'm going to be doing uh, in the well, both in this podcast and also in future podcasts, is to unsurprisingly keep you up to date on everything that's employment law and HR related. Now, so what's the purpose behind the podcast? Well, I appreciate that there's um, lots of other podcasts available out there from other users, but we're we're, and I'm particularly conscious of the fact that everybody likes to engage with us in particularly different ways. And um, we've already got our YouTube channel where we're posting video updates, video employment law and HR updates. So if your preference is to, to actually watch something and listen at the same time, then uh, you can do that. You can also keep in touch with us by uh, receiving our email updates, which we provide to... Um, everyone who is signed up and particularly of course all of our clients on a on a regular basis but we thought we'd also provide another opportunity for you to keep yourself up to date through a podcast because I appreciate that um, it's not always easy uh, or straightforward to actually sit down and watch a video when you're wanting to to get your your news update and you don't necessarily always want to be sat down reading things you might be out on the dog walk or uh, something like that although I appreciate that course we're not driving everywhere at the moment uh, which is often when I would listen to my podcast is when I'm going up and down the motorway but um, in any event that's the purpose of it it's simply to provide you with a another way of um, getting the information that you need to keep on top of all of the changes in order for you to be able to do your job that uh, uh, that you do and particularly in these and I know it's a bit of a cliche but particularly in these challenging times when we're not working as teams uh, in the same way as we were before and we're all um, in our own little uh, bedrooms or offices at home and uh, and so the normal training and updates that you would be receiving are, are perhaps not as easily accessible as they were before. Um, and for what it's worth, um, going back to the dog walk issue, um, uh, mine's a golden doodle and he's called Harley and uh, and so that's the dog that's getting walked when I'm listening to my podcasts or, or audiobooks. So anyway, um, for technical reasons, obviously, I'm not recording this whilst walking through the, the Somerset wind and rain. Um, I'll leave that to you at the moment. And in the meantime, let's crack on with, uh, with the update and what's been happening in the, in the exciting world of employment law and HR over the last few weeks. Now, I promise that this is not a podcast about COVID and furlough, but, and there is a little bit of a but here, um, the, the first matter that I'm going to cover is furlough related, and it's in relation to the update by the HMRC of the Coronavirus Job Retention Scheme guidance, the CJRS guidance. Um, this guidance was updated on the 5th of January, and it simply confirms that uh, employees may be furloughed if they were unable to work or are working reduced hours because of caring responsibilities that have arisen because of COVID. Of course, this is a particularly important and relevant issue in a way now that perhaps it wasn't quite so before because of the new lockdown that's come into place and the closure of the schools because now a lot of um, a lot of employees who are also working parents are now getting caught in that very tricky situation of having to homeschool 
their children whilst trying to juggle the responsibilities for their work. Um, whether that be trying to juggle um, the responsibilities of going into work if they are still actually attending site to do their work, or alternatively, um, having to juggle trying to do work and Zoom calls and Teams calls uh, and talking to customers and so on and so forth, whilst also trying to homeschool their children, which of course is a very difficult balance to achieve. A number of employers have taken the approach of adjusting employees' working hours to enable them to do that, but this, what this uh, revision to the, um, the furlough guidance says is that for employees that do have those caring responsibilities for children who are at home as a result of the closure of schools or childcare facilities, um, then the furlough scheme is available to them. Um, so this has come really as a result of both pressure from the Labour Party and the TUC who called on the government to provide greater support for parents during this third lockdown um, in the UK. Um, some employers indeed have gone even further. Um, the Swiss insurance firm Zurich has actually introduced um, what they call lockdown leave, which constitutes two weeks of paid leave for parents facing emergency childcare issues um, as a result of uh, the closure of primary and secondary schools uh, in the UK. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see whether whether any other employers follow their lead, although I completely appreciate that many employers who perhaps would, in an ideal world, want to follow that lead just simply can't afford to do so because of the, the impact that um, the COVID pandemic is having on their business. So that's, that's the first uh, piece of news. That's the first, uh, the first topic of the first podcast and it's furlough, but as I promised, we're moving on from uh, from that now. So the next uh, issue that I want to cover is restrictive covenants. Now, non-compete clauses. Now, I appreciate that they don't really set the world on fire, do they? They're not the most exciting or interesting topic for um, HR practitioners or, in fact, even you know employment lawyers. Um, but, of course, we often include them within our employment contracts uh, and then simply forget about them um, until an ex-employee or a soon-to-be ex-employee then goes to work for a competitor or perhaps even starts a new business. And it's at that point that we then frantically search around for the employment contract to see whether there is anything that we can do to stop them. Um, now, restrictive covenants are therefore often overlooked because it we only have a look at them with a fine tooth comb or often only have a look at them with a fine tooth comb um, once we want to enforce them whereas of course the approach that we should be taking to them is having a very close look at them whilst we're drafting them and whilst we're implementing them to make sure that they are reasonable and enforceable um, but as a result of the COVID pandemic, yes, I know I said I wasn't going to refer to it again, but you know, it, it, this isn't a COVID pan, pandemic issue. It's simply that this has prompted the government to have a look at the post-termination restrictions issue. But because of the COVID pandemic, what the government have said is that they are worried that the labour market isn't going to be flexible enough as we then come out of the um, 
uh, I was going to, it's not a, appreciate that we're not quite positioning it as a recession, but in any event, you know, once we come out of the dip that the economy is in, perhaps that's the better way of putting it, um, that they want the uh, labour market to be as flexible as possible. And one of the things that they have identified as is that is restricting the flexibility within the job market at the moment is the use of post-termination restrictions and non-compete clauses. So they have started a consultation and that consultation is about measures to reform these non-compete restrictive covenants. And it's considering two things. First of all, they are considering changing the law so that non-compete clauses are only enforceable if the employer provides compensation during the term of the clause. So, for instance, if the restriction lasts for six months, the former employer will have to pay a percentage of the salary during that period. And the government is asking whether that percentage of the salary should be anything between 40 to 100%. So, Quite clearly, it's interesting to, to note the fact that they're consulting on 40 to 100%. They're not consulting on 30 to 100% or 20 to 100%. They're talking about 40 to 100%. Um, so that's the first question in the consultation. Now, of course, what that would mean is that if, as an employer, you wanted to enforce a post-termination restriction for an employee that, say, perhaps prevents them from going and working for a competitor for six months, you would then have to continue paying them a proportion of their salary for the duration of that six-month period after they have left your employment. So that's certainly one thing that would focus employers' minds as to whether, in fact, they want to try to enforce the, uh, the clause or not. And, of course, what it does do is it provides an immediate answer to the employee, or the ex-employee, about whether, in fact, they can take up this other opportunity because they're not going to be forever worried about the fact that the employer might uh, or their ex-employer might want to enforce this in uh, at some point during that six-month period because of course the employer would have to make a decision right at the very beginning about whether it's going to make these payments or not. So it provides clarity and it also focuses the mind of the employer. So that's the first proposal that is on the table in relation to the consultation. Now the second is banning the non-compete restrictive covenants or together. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see obviously what the outcome of this is. Now the consultation is open until the 26th of February so we're certainly not going to have obviously any news before then. Um, given that this consultation has been prompted by the pandemic and the flexibility within the job market then if we are going to see a change, I suspect we're going to see it quite quickly after the 26th of February because the government are going to want to implement it um, quite quickly because there's simply no point in, um, in implementing this in uh, you know a year or 18 months' time. So I really do think that we're likely to be looking at perhaps an October impl implementation date if uh, this is to go to head. So really, let's watch this space. Um, and because, of course, the government will have to publish some legislation if this is going to uh, if this is going to come into force. But um, they don't always tell us if they're not going to take action, though. So it might be that the responses to the consultation come in, and then we just simply hear nothing from the government because that has happened with consultations in the past. Okay, moving on to 
uh, statutory sick pay and uh, an amendment to the coronavirus amendment regulations. Um, and I'm now appreciating that in the, we're now on the third uh, update issue, and this is an, another related coronavirus point. So my apologies, I am going to get off it shortly. But anyway, the government has made uh, an amendment on the 24th of December to the statutory sick pay regulations. So these are, for, for, the, for those anoraks out here who, who like to have the full titles, these are the statutory sick pay, open brackets, general close brackets, open brackets, coronavirus amendment, close brackets, open brackets, number seven, close brackets, regulations 2020. And so what these, the seventh amendment of these regulations do is they amend the original statutory sick pay regulations of 1982 in order to ensure that individuals will be eligible for SSP for the period for which they are required to self-isolate, including where they have tested positive for coronavirus or where they are in a household with someone who has tested positive in England, Scotland and Wales. Okay, so the amendments reflect the changes to these self-isolation requirements that that have been made. Um, now, one of the things that employers need to bear in mind, or we all need to bear in mind, is the fact that there is what these coronavirus amendment regulations have have done is that, of course, they're providing an entitlement to statutory sick pay at a time when there are requirements for us to self isolate, but we're not necessarily ill. So, of course, previously, in order to get access or to get paid SSP or to get paid your company sick pay, then you would uh, you would need to be ill. The reason that these regulations are in place is to reflect the fact that you can still get your statutory sick pay even in circumstances where you're not ill. But, of course, it doesn't necessarily follow that there is going to be an obligation on the company to continue to provide, or I say continue to provide, to provide company sick pay, so the enhanced sick pay that might provide you know, full pay or 50% of pay or whatever the contract provides for. There's no, your, your contractual sick pay rules have not been uh, amended and so therefore it doesn't necessarily follow that simply because they're triggering the entitlement to statutory sick pay under these changes that they are triggering entitlement to your contractual sick pay as well. Um, so, I mean, what I would encourage you to do is if you do want uh, a definitive answer on that, then we would have to have a look at the employment contract and the, and the specific clause that you've got in relation to sick pay to, to do a double check as to what the position is for you, because it is going to vary depending upon the way in which particular clauses are worded. So that's the statutory sick pay coronavirus amendment regs. Um, now, Brexit. So, um, the Information Commissioner's Office has published some new guidance on keeping data flowing um, both from the EU into the UK and from the UK out to the EU because, of course, the Brexit deal was only done shortly before Christmas so everyone's been caught on the hop a little bit in relation to um, what, uh, what procedures and what arrangements we're going to have for the transferring of data as a result of uh, Brexit taking place at the end of the year. So the ICO have published some guidance which is obviously available on their website 
And what they're doing is essentially they're advising businesses, unsurprisingly, they're advising businesses to carry on complying with the Data Protection Act 2018, which of course is the implementation in UK law of the general data protection regulation, the GDPR. Um, it's advising businesses to continue to use standard contractual clauses, of which there are some template standard contractual clauses on the ICO website, um, in order to keep data flowing between countries. Um, and of course, to ensure that you review your privacy information and amend anything necessary um, that you need to do. Now, interesting, I say interestingly, intriguingly perhaps, um, no decision has been made yet by the EU as to whether the UK's data protection regime is adequate as far as the EU is concerned. What the Information Commissioner's offices said is that, quote, an adequacy decision is still possible, but the timing is unclear. So there is a little bit of watch this space. Um, the ICO have promised that they, I say promised, they've indicated that they are going to be providing um, further new and updated guidance as the transition period uh, progresses. So watch this space um, for future updates. And keeping on the Brexit theme, um, HMRC has published some new guidance. So we're having lots of new guidance being published as a result of um, Brexit um, actually taking place on the 1st of January 2021. Um, although I might have that wrong, it might be the 31st of December 2020 midnight I don't know which I, I don't know which is the correct date to be referring to but anyway turn of the year so HMRC has published some new guidance on national insurance and social security contributions for both UK and EU workers um, now what that guidance provides is an overview of when workers from the UK working in the European economic area or Switzerland will have to pay UK national insurance contributions and when they will need to pay social security contributions in their country of work and how they can apply to the HMRC for a certificate or document um, that sets this out. Um, and it will also provide some uh, guidance in relation to when workers, uh, when, sorry, when EEA or Swiss workers coming to the UK um, when they will need to be paying social security contributions in the EU, EU or Norway or Iceland or Switzerland or Liechtenstein or, or when they pay it in the UK. Okay, but both the EU and the UK are keeping their Brexit related guidance under review. Uh, so again, it's a case of let's watch this space. But if you do have any particular social security issues in, uh, in relation to your employees who are um, either normally based in the UK but working in the European economic area or vice versa, then check out this guidance on the HMRC's website. Keeping with the uh, guidance theme, um, a couple of other guidances which have been issued. So this one's going back to the Information Commissioner. So another Information Commissioner's piece of guidance. And this is about the use of algorithms in the recruitment process. Um, so what the ICO have done is they have uh, they have outlined six different points of consideration um, for the use of uh, for the use of algorithms in recruitment. Now, of course, the use of algorithms in recruitment is something that we're 
beginning to see a bit of a growing uh, growing trend on um, because of course it's it's the use of uh, artificial intelligence systems and there are some benefits of course in doing so because um, it it could help with the unconscious human biases that perhaps we would otherwise have but what they've highlighted in these six points um, six points of consideration uh, if you are using um, some sort of automated decision-making perhaps shortlisting process something like that within your recruitment process so what they're saying is that the bias and discrimination are a problem in human decision-making so of course it therefore consequently follows that it will be a problem with decision-making in uh, AI decision-making so artificial intelligence decision-making because of course they're programmed by humans so that that bias by uh, humans can then just simply be passed on into the system itself and secondly their second point of consideration is that it's hard to build fairness into an algorithm um, because of course it doesn't have a you know it doesn't have a a, a thought process of of its own it's not going to be able to make judgment calls which of course can be a benefit in some ways but um, in other ways, it, it can mean that uh, the, uh, the, the, the way that you make the cutoffs can then lead to discrimination and obviously particularly in uh, uh, potential indirect discrimination uh, challenges will be flowing from it. So you've got to be very careful about the, the, the decisions that your AI system is making. Um, the other point that they've so the third point they pointed out is the advancement of big data and machine learning algorithms is making it harder to detect bias and discrimination. Um, you must consider data protection law and equalities law when developing AI systems. So it's not just about making sure that from a GDPR or a Data Protection Act point of view that these systems are compliant. You've got to make sure that the actual uh, assessments that it is making is uh, compliant with uh, with equality law and obviously therefore discrimination aspects of, uh, of the Equality Act 2010. Using solely automated decisions for private sector hiring purposes is likely to be illegal under GDPR. So um, you can only use AI to assist in the decision-making process rather than actually making the decisions for you. And then finally, the sixth point, and I wasn't necessarily counting through all of them, but this, finally the sixth point is that algorithms and automation can be used to address the problem of bias and discrimination. So whilst the first point that we make was the fact that, well, you know, you've got to be careful about the fact that human bias is then being programmed into the algorithms, which then makes the system itself. Of course, what it does do is that the same technology may also be part of the solution. So the uses of algorithms and automation can then be developed to address some of the problems as of bias and discrimination in employment and uh, and actually the algorithms can then be used to try to detect bias in the early stages of a recruitment uh, life cycle so it's very much um, uh, a case of uh, this is obviously a developing area and it's an area which is developing in use and particularly in large companies where uh, streamlining of the early stages of the recruitment process needs to happen but uh, I'd certainly encourage you to uh, anyone that's either thinking about it or anyone that has a system in place um, to have
have a look at this guidance that's been published by the Information Commissioner's Office and is available on their website. Um, so further guidance, further updated guidance and continuing on the theme of equalities. So we've got uh, the Government Equalities Office has published new guidance documents to assist employers in meeting gender pay gap reporting requirements. Um, so we've got new guidance, up, new and updated guidance documents in relation to gender pay gap reporting generally, in relation to who needs to report their gender pay gap, the information that you must include, uh, the pay gap data that you must gather, and how to make your gender pay gap calculations. Alongside of that, um, the Office for National Statistics has also published its latest report on the gender pay gap statistics for 2020. And it provides for some interesting reading. Now, the statistics themselves um, include the snapshot date of the 22nd of April 2020, which of course is a time when um, 8.8 .8 million employees were furloughed through the uh, coronavirus job retention scheme. Um, but as part of the analysis, what they have concluded is that despite the that significant factor playing a, a part where it hasn't played a part before, that the impact of that factor on the actual pay gap statistics themselves that have been published by employers is negligible. And so it's not something that we should um, be too concerned about its effect. So that effectively means that we can we can have a look at this data and we can um, and we can consider it as a reliable uh, picture of actually what is happening out there. So just running through some of the data. So for full-time employees, the gender pay gap has fallen from 9% in April 2019 to 7.4% in April 2020. However, when we then uh, expand our uh, sample out to all employees, the decrease in the period, or in fact, the, the, the figures are somewhat starker. I mean, we're looking at uh, a 17.4% pay gap when we include all employees, obviously then part-time workers. Um, and the, uh, as, as, as I'm sure you're, you're fully aware, is that the majority of part-time workers are women. And so therefore, um, it then does reflect on the, uh, an impact on the gender pay gap. So, sorry, I'll get to the figures now. So the, Gender pay gap for all employees for the same period was 17.4% in April 2019, down to 15.5% in April 2020. So again, um, an improvement, although still 15.5% is uh, a significant pay gap, quite, quite obviously. When we have a look at full-time employees under the age of 40 years old, the pay gap was close to zero which is encouraging, but again, that's just restricting it to full-time employees. So, what, of course, what that reflects is um, where, where men and women are continuing their careers without having any significant break as a result of childcare issues, then, of course, the, the, the pay gap is encouragingly uh, very low or, in fact, zero. But for older age groups, the pay gap, even for full-time employees, was over 
Um, for managers, directors, senior officials, the pay gap has decreased. Uh, and the gender pay gap was higher in England than it was in the rest of the UK. There's also an organisation called Restless, which is a digital community for the over 50s, and they have published an analysis of this um, Office of National Statistics data, which then has gone on to reveal that women over the age of 50 earn £8,427 less than their male counterparts per year. And that equates to a 23% pay gap um, between full-time workers, which then rises even further to 25% for the over 60s, but then falls down to only 3%, I say only 3%, it's still a 3% gap, isn't it? But 3% for 18 to 21-year-olds. So what this organisation, Restless, is saying is that they're arguing that women over 50 face a double discrimination based both on age and also wage disparity. So some interesting, interesting figures there. Um, so that's the update in relation to, you know, sort of uh, guidance and consultations and, uh, and what we're looking at in the future. Now, just running through a few cases now as well. So the first case that I want to talk about is a case of Heskett versus the Secretary of State for Justice. What this case deals with is the concept of the cost plus justification in discrimination law. And so just to explain what the cost plus justification in discrimination law is, it's the basic idea is that cost in itself should not be a justification. So the, it was too expensive to rectify it, um, is not a justification um, for discrimination. But where cost is part of some larger concern, i.e. cost plus something else, then the Employment Tribunal is entitled to take the cost into account. But it's got to be cost plus something else. That's the general understanding, the basic idea of the rule. Um, but this was challenged in the, in or should I say, not challenged, clarified. We've got some useful guidance about the use of the cost plus um, rule from this Heskett case. Now, the actual circumstances and the facts of the case were that the the probation service was having to alter its promotion uh, scales, its pay scales, um, in order to respond to the economies that were required by government policy. But in doing so, it changed the progression through those pay scales, and so therefore, indirectly, then disadvantaged younger employees. Um, the Employment Tribunal and the Employment Appeal Tribunal both accepted that this was justified, um, with the EAT commenting that it was necessary to square the circle brought about by, uh, by government policy. So, But this then went up to the Court of Appeal. Now, what the Court of Appeal then did is that they did an, an analysis of the, uh, of the Woodcock case. Now, what the Woodcock case, which established this principle of cost plus, was that, to quote um, uh, the judge in the case, 
is that they said, quote, the saving or avoidance of costs will not, without more, amount to the achieving of a legitimate aim, end quote. Um, with the legitimate aim being the legitimate aim that you have to have in relation to the justification defence for indirect discrimination. Um, but what they've said is that the cost plus label isn't incorrect, but that it's essentially used as a convenient shorthand. And, and as a result of that, it leads to um, mistakes um, and, you know, and uh, what they say, an inappropriately mechanistic approach to the rules. But importantly, what they then went on to say is that they've then introduced a, a change in emphasis in relation to this cost plus analysis. Because what they said was that under the cost plus approach, the emphasis was always on whether the actions could be legitimised by showing something more than just cost. Whereas the approach in this Heskett case puts the emphasis on whether they can be shown to be illegitimate because solely to avoid the increased costs. So in fact, what they've done is they've sort of turned it around the other way, which of course then effectively could, well, it's not necessarily changing the burden of proof as such, but it's, it's certainly changing the emphasis in the way that employment tribunals should be approaching the justification, the cost justification in, in discrimination cases, because it's, it's changing their focus and looking at whether it's, whether relying on cost alone is illegitimate, rather than actually requiring the company requiring the employer to show that it is legitimate so it could be a sort of shifting of the sands in relation to discrimination cases and um, cost justifications in relation to indirect discrimination cases we'll have to wait and see quite how this is implemented in the future but certainly from an employer's point of view this is providing something which is uh, a, a more beneficial position for them in the future of course from a from an individual's point of view, quite the opposite. So that's the Heskett and the Secretary of State for Justice case. Um, now, turning to a recent constructive dismissal case. Now, constructive dismissal claims, as as I'm sure you're you're all very familiar with um, at the moment. There's We've got, it, it, well, it's set out in the Employment Rights Act at Section 95 of the Employment Rights Act, which says that a constructive dismissal is where the employee terminates the contract under which they are employed, with or without notice, in circumstances in which they are entitled to terminate it without notice by reason of the employer's conduct. So essentially what it means is that, you know, if, if the employer acts in a way that is a breach of contract, a fundamental breach of contract, um then the employee is entitled to terminate the contract, to resign, um, and consider themselves dismissed under that. And the, the lead case in that, uh, and is one that you're probably all very familiar with, is Western Excavating and Sharp. And what Western, es uh, excuse me, Western Excavating and Sharp said, well, the, there were a number of elements that needed to be established to um, establish constructive dismissal. So first of all, there needs to be a repudiatory breach on the part of the employer. So this is the breach of contract by the employer. So this could be 
um, you know, in the most obvious instances, um, you know, demoting somebody, uh, not paying them what you have agreed to pay them. That could be a repudi repudiate. I always have difficulty with that word. It could be a breach of contract by the uh, by the employer, which entitles the employee to repudiate it. Um, now, the employee then has to accept that breach and treat the contract as at an end. So essentially, that means the employee must resign. And the employee must not delay too long in accepting that breach. Because if you wait too long to accept the breach, so say, for example, you get demoted and you then wait a couple of months before then concluding, well, actually, I'm not going to accept this demotion. I know I have done originally, but I'm not going to now. Then you've potentially affirmed the uh, contract, you've waived the breach, you've accepted it. And so therefore there isn't a breach of contract at the point that you resign. So that's always one thing that uh, certainly uh, individual employees always need to, individual employees and claimants need to be aware of because um, if you accept the breach, then that means that your constructive dismissal claim is going to fail. Then at one stage, it was believed to be that a departing employee had to make their reason for leaving clear to the employer if they wanted to rely on it for a ground of constructive dismissal. So if, say, for example, um, my employer doesn't give me the bonus that I'm entitled to, so they don't give me my, uh, my bonus which, of which I was relying on to then hopefully go on holiday once lockdown is out of the way, um, if they don't give me my bonus to which I'm contractually entitled, that's then a breach of contract. Uh, I resign uh, immediately upon that breach to make sure that I haven't accepted um, or waived, accepted the breach or waived um, uh, the breach. Um, but I might just put in a resignation letter that says I'm off, I'm leaving, without actually explaining that the reason for me departing is because of uh, the breach. Now, in 1999, there was a case of Weathersfield and Sargent that uh, disapproved of the reasoning that you had to actually set out on the in your resignation why you were leaving. You don't have to do that, um, but it's always been a question of fact in relation in the tribunal as to whether um, whether what the employee has done is sufficient still to show that it's a constructive dismissal. And that's a rather long-winded way of then getting to this next case, which is Kem's, Kem, Kem, Scotland Limited versus Ewer. Now, it's a good example of this sort of situation because this employee left um, left employment without providing any reason and uh, and brought a constructive dismissal claim. Now, just to give you some of the facts of the case, so um, the employee, uh, so Mrs. Ewer, she was on maternity leave when things became difficult for her within the firm. And this one is, this case is particularly awkward because it's a family firm. And she objected to acts of the management that were taken, which, and the management was in fact her father, um, during her period of maternity leave, and which the employment tribunal ultimately found were repudiatory acts. Um, so they were breaches of the employment contract. But she didn't resign at that time and in fact all she did was simply not return to work from her period of maternity leave um, and so therefore she said simply nothing um, now 
the employment tribunal upheld her uh, claim for constructive dismissal and then the employer appealed partly on the basis that simply because there were other reasons for the appeal but also partly on the basis that simply failing to return to work without any explanation could not be enough to show acceptance of the repudiatory conduct bringing her employment to the end to an end and so what they were saying was that not only was there silence but there was also just nothing at all and so therefore that could not constitute a constructive dismissal um, because, of course, normally a decision not to return would be covered by an explanation, but it's not an actual requirement to do so. And so, therefore, the employment appeal, sorry, the employment tribunal were entitled to reach the conclusion they did. And so we don't always get those very clear letters that are flagging up potential risks to us in relation to constructive dismissal, because people don't always say why they are leaving, and they don't have to say why they are leaving. And also further... Um, they don't have to uh, resign immediately, which is another, I wouldn't say con misconception, but it's certainly, you know, it, it's certainly something that we often see challenged in the employment tribunal, that if somebody leaves with notice, so they work out their notice, that somehow that weakens their constructive uh, dismissal claim, because it can't have been that bad, can it? Um, that doesn't necessarily work uh, as a, as a defence, that's not to say that it isn't something that we, that wouldn't be explored from an employer's point of view. But um, again, like I said, it's not something that individuals have to show. The next case um, is all about interim relief in discrimination cases, and this is a particularly interesting issue, I've got to say, because it could be a game changer for discrimination claims in the future. Now. Just as a little reminder, so what is interim relief? Interim relief is a claim that can be brought currently uh, for whistleblowing claims, for trade union related claims, and for some other automatic unfair dismissal claims such as health and safety, uh, pension trustees, that, that sort of claim. Um, but it cannot be brought in discrimination claims. Now, what the interim relief regime provides for is that an employee, or a claimant should I say, can bring a claim in the employment tribunal for interim relief as long as they do so within seven days of the date of termination, the effective date of termination, at which point the tribunal will then uh, arrange an emergency hearing in order to make an assessment as to whether that case has a prospect of success or to quote the uh, Derby Daily Telegraph case whether it looks like a winner. If the case looks like a winner in the tribunal's eyes at that emergency hearing then the employee is reinstated into their role pending the full hearing which of course at the moment, given the backlog that there is within the employment tribunal system, um, that could be a year, two years, that then the employee continues to get paid uh, until we then have the outcome of the hearing. So it is a very powerful tool that can be used by claimants and can provide a very powerful outcome for them. Having said that, it's something that is used incredibly rarely um, 
of course, mainly because um, employees will usually miss the uh, uh, the submission date, the time limit on it, because it has to be brought within seven days of the effective date of termination. And often at that point, um, many uh, many individuals still just drafting their their grounds of appeal, grounds for the internal appeal, rather than actually drafting an employment tribunal claim. So it's something that we really don't come across very often at all. But um, what this case then did was it was which when I say this case the the case of Steer and Stormshore. What this case was looking at was whether in fact it was the fact that discrimination cases don't get access to this concept of interim relief was incompatible with the European Convention of Human Rights. Now, what the EAT have said is that they don't have the power to de declare um, incompatibility with, um, uh, with the uh, European Convention of Human Rights. And so what they have done is that they have referred the matter, or should I say to be uh, 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 correct, it's uh, permitted the uh, claimant to appeal to the Court of Appeal and for the Court of Appeal to rule on it. So essentially, it's there's no news on this yet, but if this does proceed to the Court of Appeal and there's no settlement in the meantime, then we are potentially going to get a significant expansion of, uh, of jurisdiction in relation to discrimination claims. Uh, and it could be a bit of a game changer. It could really change the way that uh, discrimination claims are approached by claimants because they will be or potentially be seeking uh, reinstatement at a at a very early stage of the process and obliging then the employer to continue to pay them um, for many, many months, if not even longer than that. Um, so a very interesting one to watch in 2021. Um, I say 2021, let's hope it will be 2021 because of course the uh, uh, many of the courts have got uh, backlogs at the moment so it might not be heard for some time but hey let's Let's watch this space and wait and see. Um, the final case that I want to turn to in this, our, our first update, is um, disability and recurring conditions. And this is the case of Sullivan and Berry Street Capital. Now, I'm sure you're all quite familiar with the definition of uh, disability in the Equality Act. Um, which, of course, is that somebody has got to have a mental or physical impairment that, that has a substantial adverse effect on their ability to carry out day-to-day -day activities for a long period of time. I know I didn't quite get the, the, the exact wording of the definition quite correct there, but it's a substantial long-term adverse effect, I should say. Um, now, in terms of uh, long-term, of course, the... What is required is that the condition has got to last or be expected to last for 12 months or that it is likely to recur. And what this case looks at is, as I said, it's about recurring conditions. And so, uh, and whether it's likely to recur. And so uh, guidance on this uh, particular issue and uh, as, as was you know, the issue is, is set out at paragraph two to, 
um, subparagraph 2 of Schedule 1 of the Equality Act 2010 is set out in the case of Swift and Chief Constable of Wiltshire, Constabulary from 2004, which suggested that four questions needed to be asked, which was, was there at some stage an impairment which had a substantial adverse effect on the claimant's ability to carry out normal day-to-day -day activities? Did the impairment cease to have such an effect, and if so, when? What was the substantial adverse effect, and is that substantial adverse effect likely to recur? And then when we're then having a look at likely to recur, the courts have said in the case of SCA packaging boil that this means something that could well happen. So making it easier for the, the claimant to satisfy. And so an employee then effectively has to show that the particular adverse effect is likely to recur on at least one occasion during their lifetime. And so therefore they may even they may be disabled even if there is no immediate prospect of recurrence. But then, so particularly with mental health issues where often you get a flux of um, good times and bad times, um, how, how does the law deal with those intermittent conditions and recurring mental health issues? And that was addressed to an extent in this um, case of Sullivan and Berry Street uh, Capital. And in this case, Mr. Sullivan suffered from uh, a paranoid delusion that he was being followed by a Russian gang. Uh, this paranoid delusion um, occurred following a breakup with his girlfriend in July 2013. The consequence of this paranoid delusion that he was suffering from was that it affected his work to the extent that his timekeeping, attendance and record keeping worsened. But then he appeared to get better by September 2013. So, only two months later, um, and then everything was fine. But then things reverted back to the original difficulties, in, and when I say the original difficulties, those between July 2013 and September 2013. So things reverted back to those original difficulties in April 2017, so some four years later. And he was then dismissed in t September 2017, so five months later, or five months after this recurrence, because of his poor timekeeping. So, Mr. Sullivan then brought unfair dismissal and disability discrimination claims. And the Employment Tribunal concluded that he did have a mental impairment from July 2013 until September 2017, but that that mental impairment only had a substantial adverse effect for a few months, both in 2013 and in 2017. And as the substantial adverse effect had not lasted for 12 months, the test was then whether there was a likelihood of recurrence of that substantial adverse effect. And they, the Employment Tribunal concluded that in 2013, it was not likely to recur and therefore he was not considered to be disabled. And essentially the EAT agreed with this. They held that although there was a substantial adverse effect in 2013 and again in 2017, in neither case was it likely that the adverse uh, effect would last for 12 months 
or that it would recur. And so whilst there is a low threshold for recurrence, um, that doesn't mean that where a substantial adverse effect does in fact recur, an employment tribunal is prevented from concluding that as at that earlier date, the effect wasn't likely to occur. Similarly, the fact that the, sub the substantial adverse effect is itself a recurrence does not prevent the tribunal from concluding that as at the date of the latest episode, a further, a further recurrence was not likely. So whilst this is helpful in a way, because what essentially what it does is it, is, is, it, is it means that simply because there is a recurrence, it doesn't mean that at the time when the original substantial adverse effect actually took place, that it was likely to recur in the future. The fact that it did do doesn't mean that it was likely. Um, and, but it does show, what this case does show is that it's really difficult for employers to be able to assess the risk in relation to sporadic mental health conditions. Um, and so, you know, uh, I, I, and I know it's a little bit of a stuck record, but you will have to deal with all of these um, uh, sort of cases, very much on a case-by-case -case basis. Take good medical advice, find yourself a good occupational health provider uh, that can provide you with, with good advice. And the, 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 the one point, the one little tip that I would give you in relation to the use of occupational health is don't be afraid to ask follow-up questions. That's one of the things that I'm always encouraging uh, my employer clients to do. Uh, which is when we get the report through, there are often, not always, but there are often follow-up questions that we would like to ask. And so rather than simply shrugging our shoulders and getting frustrated with occupational health that perhaps they haven't said what we want them to say, we go back to them and we ask them. And they still might not be able to answer the specific question, but um, we should go back, we ask those questions, we ask those follow-up questions, and then we can make a better informed decision at the end of the day in relation to that person's health and their employment. So that concludes the first episode of uh, our Employment Law and HR podcast and I do hope you found that useful. I hope that you haven't dozed off. Um, uh, if you have listened to this in, in, in one sitting or should I say in one dog walk or um, uh, one walk around the block or whatever, then I'm very impressed indeed. In fact, you, you must have hit your 10,000 steps if you've listened to all of this in one uh, in one go. But I hope you found it useful. We will be returning again. I will be keeping these podcasts uh, coming through on a regular basis. So uh, please keep an eye on all of your, um, on your relevant podcast provider. Obviously, you need to tick the subscribe button to be notified of uh, any updates in future. If you do want to get in contact us, with us, then please do so, matthew.huggett at carbonlawpartners.com um, or uh, follow me on LinkedIn, uh, Facebook and Twitter and also uh, register for our email updates. And so please do keep in touch. Uh, and if there is anything that we can do to help, then let us know. But in the meantime, thanks very much for listening and uh, no doubt um, speak to you all soon. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm.